BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, this is Steve. There are few filmmakers more iconoclastic than Stanley Kubrick, and few films more iconic than Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Made in 1963, shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, Dr. Strangelove is a comedy about the least funny topic possible, the complete annihilation of the human race. Starring George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, the completely unique Slim Pickens, and the brilliant Peter Sellers in not one, but three roles, Dr. Strangelove is in a class by itself. Somehow, it manages to be simultaneously funny, frightening, completely ridiculous, and all too real, while also being an almost perfectly crafted piece of cinema. Strangelove was created at the height of the Cold War, but the truth is, it's just as powerful and topical today as it was more than 50 years ago. And if you really want to dig deep into this film, there's a fantastic Criterion Collection Blu-ray, which you can purchase through our website at cinephiles.net. That's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S.net. You can buy Dr. Strangelove along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. So that's Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb this Friday on The Cinephiles. Look, boys, there ain't much of a hand in making speeches. But I got a pretty fair idea that something doggone important is going on back there. I'll tell you something else. This thing turns out to be half as important as I figured it just might be. I'd say that you're all in line for some important promotions and personal citations when this thing's over with. That goes for every last one of you, regardless of your race, color, or your creed. Let's get this thing on the hump. We got some flying to do. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Rocha. I'm a voiceover artist, host of shows, writer, producer, blah, 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 blah. A lot of stuff here in Los Angeles. Uh, but most of all, I like to be a co-host on The Cinephiles. <laughs> it's Boom. The- the number one. It's number one. Put it up there. So there are a lot of different reasons that we choose films to do. Sometimes we choose them for sad reasons because yeah. someone has passed away. Sometimes we choose them because it's suggested on our Patreon page, and that's mm-hmm. a great way to get your suggestions to us. Sometimes we choose them because you and I just are in the mood for it. Yeah. 
This one I think I chose or we chose because I'm scared. Yeah, I think it's um, it's. I remember you mentioning this a few weeks ago, and then when the stuff happened with North Korea recently, I texted you as like maybe it's time because I had been resistant to it because yeah. I wasn't ready to give that country the credibility for this possibility, and then these last two tests really kind of woke me up to the possibility this is very real, and so we thought. Why not? This is a. This seems like the right time to do uh, Doctor Strangelove, or how I stop learning. Or I always have trouble saying it. Or how I stop worrying and learn to love the Bond. Yeah, um, and it's funny. I was thinking about this a lot. Is that you and I grew up in an era where the threat of nuclear war was real? Yeah, very much so. And both in I. I don't know if you ever hid under your desk or had drills. Sure. I in remember. Elementary school. I remember exploring my temple and seeing the signs to the bomb shelter. Oh wow! At yeah. the bottom of the temple, and certainly in pop culture, whether it was Planet of the Apes or you know the day after, or right. you know the idea that the world could end, or Mad Max, or Mad Max. Yeah, yeah. yeah that the world could end. That was real. Yeah. And then in 1989, with the fall of the Soviet Union, we all kind of breathed a sigh of relief and mm-hmm. went, oh, I think we, we dodged a bullet. Right. You know? And there was even, there's a very famous essay called The End of History by Francis Fukuyama. And he wrote this essay. Basically, he said that with the fall of the Soviet Union, the, end, the, the era of, of crashing idealisms had ended. Wow. And that there wouldn't be these great conflicts over... Uh, ideals and politics and that mm-hmm. we would go and would be the end of history because those conflicts would end. Right. Boy, was that guy wrong. <laughs> and suddenly here it is 2017 and we have a growing nuclear power in North Korea mm-hmm. and the world's largest nuclear power in the United States suddenly threatening nuclear war again. Yeah. And yeah. Well, it's too... <sighs> For lack of a better term, two blustery leaders yeah. who are slamming chests into each other, something out of a sumo wrestling match, and they're trying to rile up their bases uh, by threatening this whole idea of nuclear war as if it's uh, no big deal, which is what's unsettling to me. Uh, this is not about hubris or manhood or any stupid archaic concept. It's about being intelligent with the power that you have wielding power forcefully is okay in certain moments wielding ultimate power force in a blunt way to me is dangerous it's oh yeah because it has to be there there's a reason we have a progression of stuff you know if you did something wrong your dad didn't take a concrete brick and hit you in the face like he talked to you first or he spanked you eventually well no any dad i would hope any dad you know so that's the thing you do something i was like okay we're gonna speak and people like well it's been years and years and years and i get that sure but it's a different leader. It's a different time. Things are more. Things are more. Uh, there's more at stake. And so, to me, the the way this is all being handled is very, very dangerous. And for the first time ever, as you said, Steve, we grew up with this threat. For the first time ever, I get the old feelings from back in the '80s right. when this was a very real possibility at any moment. Any little blip on the radar, any mistake by anybody on a front line, because it isn't just us against them. It's our allies against their allies. So any number of things can trigger this thing. Like, what's the joke? The flock of geese almost caused a world war, you know, the mm-hmm. nuclear war. So you never know what can happen. Well, it, and and this is what brings us, this is why I think both of us went, we have to go back to Dr. Strangelove. Because Dr. Strangelove is yeah. exploring 
these ideas and just as you said it's it's the mistakes mm -hmm. it's all the cogs in the chain it's all the little things yeah. that make us so very fragile uh and and it's funny watching it and I spent a lot of time thinking about this movie mm. because in a lot of ways, I think Dr. Strangelove stands alone. Yes. I don't think it's like any other movie. I don't think it exists with any tradition. Mm. I think it is its own thing. It is very, and it's hard to reckon with. Yeah. You know? Um, so we'll start it's, with... It's okay. one of the most uncomfortable satires I've ever watched. Without question. And because it combines the best of Mel Brooks's uh, comedic satire uh, abilities with an incredible intelligence in Stanley Kubrick. And so do you, when you combine those two, the jokes are almost uncomfortable to laugh at because they're too truthful. Well, they're too yeah. real. And you combine it with a topic, which I would say, I can confidently say is literally as serious as any topic there is. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Is that we're talking about the potential end of human life. Yeah. As we know it. That we inflict on each other. That we not 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 some kind of world-ending event, something that we do purposefully to take us out simply because we're from a different region, and yet it's really funny. Yes, a very funny movie. Do you know how you first came to it? Yeah, I saw it back when I was like going through the list of my AFI films I hadn't seen. I remember uh, renting this one, I think, on Netflix one time a few years ago, watching it for the first time. Because I'm a massive Kubrick fan, but this is one of these, I was like, it's in black and white, it doesn't, it seems kind of weird, and I was like, oh, Peter Sellers is amazing, but the Peter Sellers I grew up with was um, Clouseau. Inspector Clouseau, right, right, from the Pink Panther, so I wasn't ready to maybe watch something that was so satirical, like Lolita, Lolita's one that I approach slowly as well, and so... Well, Lolita's a good one to have some trepidation about <laughs> exactly, approaching. You're right, but he's also in that, playing multiple yeah. characters, and so for me, it was something that I, I was kind of, uh, always kind of weird about. And then when I saw it, it was something that I don't even know if the word enjoyed is correct, but it was something that I was uh, thoroughly just overwhelmed by because it was, like you said, unique. Like you said, Steve, it was unique in its own way. Like, I couldn't put this in a box anywhere. No. I couldn't call it a drama or a, or a comedy or a uh, psychological thriller. I, I couldn't put this in a box anywhere. It's, it's, it's ultimately a, a most singular film because nothing before or after has ever come close to being that. And so I couldn't understand how to... I couldn't reckon with it for a, a long time after I watched it. Because people would talk about, oh, it's incredible satire. It's about the nuclear war, blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't go along with this praise for this movie because I didn't feel necessarily the same way. I just felt like this is an unsettlingly good film about a very uncomfortable situation or topic. It's, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard in a way that I don't think any other <laughs> comedy is hard. Right. Um, so you saw it fairly recently, within yes. the last ten years. Yeah, I would like say. That. Yeah, yeah. I I definitely saw it probably freshman in high school. Oh wow! And I remember seeing it and going, okay. Mm. And I didn't not like it. I didn't <laughs> like it. I knew that it was important, and there were it was just like a lot to reckon with. Yeah. And then I think I saw it in college a couple of times and went. Okay. Yeah. And then and then seen it and each time I see it it gets kind of more powerful. Yeah. Um because you have to and this is true with Kubrick. It's definitely it's true in The Shining which we've already talked about. Yeah. But but it's much more so true in things like Clockwork Orange or 2001 where you have to go or Paths of Glory as well where you have to kind of go I'm going to let Kubrick be in charge here right. and accept that what what's going to happen, you yeah. know, like I can't put my thing on it. Um, and this movie is definitely that where it is its own thing. Yeah. 
and you kind of have to accept it. Yep. Um, and it's funny as I learn more about you know politics and about military strategy and things like that, things that have interested me. Then I go back to Strange Love and I go, oh shit, he had it. <laughs> he had it going on. Yeah, he, he knew what was going on. Here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, let's talk a little bit about pre-production. Uh, first of all, if you want to know like kind of a biographical information on Stanley Kubrick, you should go back and listen to our Shining episode. <laughs> so we talked a lot about him then. And yeah. really, by the way, The Shining is one of my favorite of our episodes. Oh, nice. I like it a lot. Yep. I think it's a lot of fun. And so I'm going to direct your attention back there. <laughs> um, uh, what's interesting is that this is, so it's 1963 is when they're making this film. Yeah. And Kubrick has, has grown in power to the point where at this point, this is essentially an independent film made within the studio system. Mm. So they really gave him his own control. And this is the first film in which he is the producer, the writer, and the director. Um, so he's really, you know, becoming that auteur. Mm -hmm. And the movie starts really for him in 1961 during the Berlin crisis. Okay. This is during the Berlin airlift and the Berlin wall being constructed. Yeah. And essentially Kubrick freaked out. Okay. Because the reality of nuclear war, of war with the Soviets, this is the height of the Cold War, really, really hits him. And he gets scared. Wow. And this is and, and because he can see things on so many yeah. he's just an intelligent guy. He can see he sees the implications of everything and how it's connected. And this is fascinating because you're talking about sixty three. This is when Kennedy was killed. This is like there's so much going on when in the, the movie world. came out, yeah. Yeah, Khrushchev, yeah. no, when he starts to think about it, right? No, no, movie, well Kennedy's still alive. Kennedy came out in sixty Kennedy the film came out in sixty four. Film came out, yeah, but yes. You're, you said they're starting. He's starting to shoot it in '63, right? Right. Yeah. Before the, Ken, before Kennedy was killed. Right, but this is the year Kennedy dies. Is what yes. I'm saying. This is the year we have. Isn't this the year we just come out of the Cuban Missile Crisis? That's right. So all of this is happening right yeah. around when this film is being made. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he and because he's Kubrick and because he's brilliant and because he likes to learn. Yeah. He, it sounds like he went down the rabbit hole of studying about nuclear war and geopolitics and all that stuff. And the more he studied, the more he got scared. And the more he got scared, the more he said, I have to make a movie about this. Right. And they buy a uh, book. He buys a book called Red Alert, which is a serious book about a potential nuclear war. And they set out to make a serious movie. Yeah, That's where it starts. And he, uh, with the writer from the book, whose name I just drew a blank on at the moment, mm -hmm. they start writing this thing. And here's what happened. Uh, they're trying to write it serious. Originally, they wanted Burt Lancaster for the president oh. and Spencer Tracy for the Russian ambassador, which seems like really that strange seems casting. Weird, yeah. uh, at one point, they have a, the title. Uh, they change the title to Edge of Doom with Oof. two exclamation points. Yikes. This is not a good title. No. And here's what keeps happening. Every time they try to write something serious, they crack up. <laughs> and they keep thinking it's funny. And then they try to write it serious, and then they end up laughing. And they write up serious, and they end up laughing. And over and over again, this happens for months that they're trying to write this script yeah. until finally Kubrick says, you know, if we keep laughing, maybe this is a comedy. And I think that moment, we're, I'm going to talk about that moment more. Okay. Because this idea that it became so serious that the only thing they could do was laugh. Mm -hmm. And that's why this becomes a comedy. Yeah. That's... That's a crazy moment in the development of a film. Well, I think it's I think it's it's it would it makes complete sense. Because it's so overwhelming to think of this idea. It's almost comical to think yeah. of this idea that yeah. we sh we have this as a possibility in our pockets to end each other this way, right? The human condition. Uh it's it's ridiculous. And so 
the fact that this is a possibility for us is lunacy defined, right? right? And so we as artists or people like Kubrick as artists like can conceive of destroying, yep. purposefully destroying yep. millions of people simply because of a violation of some kind of line in the sand or the dirt, you know, border, some border crossing or something. I think lunacy defined, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> to, to invest yeah. literally billions of dollars in tremendous amount of time and effort to create a system whereby we can control all life on earth. Yeah. That's uh, lunacy defined. And, <laughs> right. And, and this is how this is how Kubrick uh, put it, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this a little bit, but he said essentially that there is a paradoxical outcome to any particular line of thought. So if you continue down any line of thought yeah. obsessively, you will eventually reach a paradox. And in this case, sure. I, think, I think that paradoxical outcome is the more seriously you try to take the Cold War, the funnier it gets. Right. You know? And it is. It's funny. Because there's so many characters involved. Khrushchev was a character within himself. Oh, yeah. Right? No question. You know? Yeah. We, yeah. Anyway. So, so, so they turned this thing into a comedy. Um, and the, the, one of the big things the studio said they have to do is they have to hire Peter Sellers. Because they love Peter Sellers in Lolita. And that's, it, it was insisted by the studio, which wow. surprises me. Wow. Uh, and this idea comes along that he's going to take uh, play three parts. And I'm going to give a really brief bio of Peter Sellers because I have a feeling there's going to be another Peter Sellers down the yeah, line. At least and one. And we'll, we'll go in a little bit deeper. But sure. he's a child actor from a, a family of actors. And he ended up on where he really got fame was on the BBC radio as part of the Goon Show. And from everything I've heard, and I think we talked about it with Monty Python, yeah. is that if you were interested in comedy in the 50s in England... Everybody stopped what they were doing to listen to the Goon Show. Right. The Goon, this was hugely in, influential. And one of the things that Peter Sellers gets known for is this incredible versatility of his ability to play characters. Uh, and uh, in, coming into films, obviously, is in Lolita. We already mm -hmm. me mentioned Inspector Clouseau. Uh, uh, and from the Pink Panther movies, of course, one of my favorites is Being There. Yeah, Being There. Which I just, is an amazing movie. I'll and have to watch that one day. I have never watched Being There. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll do it for the cinephiles. We can even do it for the first time. Okay. Because sure. I, have, I haven't seen it probably in 15 or 20 years, yeah. but I could remember seeing it as a kid. I like, I just can remember as a 11 year old sitting yeah. in the theater and being so deeply affected by it. And I've seen it a few times since, but not a lot. Yeah. Um, and uh, it sounds like, you know, not. Uh, it's not unusual that Peter Sellers, like a lot of comedians, struggled with depression mm. and insecurity. And one thing he said, and this just really struck me, was he often claimed to have no identity whatsoever outside of the characters he played on film. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a lot to deal with. Well, That's a sad, sad line. Sometimes what you're good at destroys you, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, drug and alcohol addiction mm -hmm. and died at 54. 54? Yeah. Insane. I'm about to turn 49. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he gets hired initially. Will you stop being fatalistic? You're hilarious. Like every time someone's Look, young, this is, dude, you're this like, is the nuclear, I'm about to die. This is the <laughs> nuclear war podcast. <laughs> yes, oh, right, fair enough. Fair enough. I, I rescind my statement. And you notice, by the way, you, you said you were about to die, and we both laughed. Yes. That's what, that's what is in this movie. That's all you can do. It's, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's all you can do. And that's what we're going to get to. Uh, one last thing about Peter Sellers. He was supposed to play four parts in this movie. Oh. The fourth part was Major Khan. Oh, Slim Pickens', Slim Pickens. part. Yeah. <laughs> and he literally was in the costume, straddling the bomb, 15 feet in the air, 
having a knockdown drag out argument with Stanley Kubrick about something because they are both big personalities uh-huh. and he fell off the bomb and uh, sprained or broke his ankle and then he wasn't able to do the stuff he needed to do and that's when they brought in Slim Pickens. Wow. Yeah. Well, some things happen for a reason. What a great accident. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, look, Peter Sell's performances in everything in this movie are amazing. Yes. But Slim Pickens. Yes. You can't. There's nothing like that. You need that American voice in oh, yeah. there. I think yeah. you need him. Yeah. Shall we get into the movie? Yes, please. I love that there's a U.S. Air Force warning right at the beginning of this film. <laughs> All of it is brilliant. Yeah. By the way, though, that is real. Yes. The U.S. Air Force insisted that this go at the beginning of the film. Oh, really? Yeah. That is a real warning from the U.S. Air Force. That, makes that says, sense. And, was interesting, and of course, the Air Force had nothing to do with this film. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of movies that we've talked about where the military was very involved. Not this one. No, no surprise. Yeah. Um, and we get a little bit of voiceover. Um, and then we go into this title sequence, which is refueling a plane to the lovely <laughs> classic American standard of try a little tenderness. Not the Otis Redding version. Right. It's a lot of sex references in this scene. This is what's so fantastic. And this is what he's saying about our obsession with weapons, with with planes. It's it's supposed to be our manhood. It's supposed to convey virility, all this kind of stuff. And he's making fun of it right from the beginning. Everyone's obsession with war and planes and uh, being having the biggest plane and having these great spectacles in the sky to deliver these massive bombs to destroy all this land and people. It's he just is making fun of our obsession, our almost sexual obsession with this violence. To to, to quote Quentin Tarantino from Reservoir Dogs, this whole refueling sequence is dick, 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 dick. <laughs> Basically, which yeah. Which is a lot of dicks. It's <laughs> a lot of dicks. <laughs> um, yeah, and we have these titles, which again, are look like nothing that has happened ever on film. Yeah, incredible there, font. There's this graphic font thing that's very kind of cartoony. And, and what Kubrick says is that some of the best political satire at the time was from cartoons. It was uh, from Jules Pfeiffer, it was sure. Mad Magazine. That's who was poking fun at the, at the establishment at this right. time. Uh, and something I was thinking about as we're watching these planes refuel, because a movie we just did very recently is The Right Stuff. Yeah. This is the opposite movie for The Right Stuff. Absolutely. The Right Stuff is about patriotism and courage and America. And although there's all sorts of things that show you that that's kind of bullshit in that yeah. film, yeah. this movie is completely tearing all of that down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we end up at an Air Force base and we meet our first version of Peter Sellers. <laughs> As uh, Captain Mandrake. I love this. I love his British accent on this. I love the portrayal of this guy. Just something about this guy is so perfect because he is so proper yep. in everything he does, no matter what's happening. Yep. And it's uh, it's a fantastic character. He is. It's the classic stiff upper lip. Yeah. British, unflappable, you know, not I can deal with anything, always calm, always polite. Yeah. Um, and, and what we'll see as this goes along is that that is a problem. Yes. Is that the normal thing, which are admirable characteristics on some level, are really not helpful yeah. in what is about to happen. Especially when you're dealing with someone who's uh, gone over the edge. Crazy pants. Yeah, crazy pants. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of crazy pants, we meet General Ripper, Sterling Hayden. <laughs> Finally, we have talked about Sterling Hayden in so many podcasts because he was almost in this or almost in that. Or almost mm-hmm. just, it was like in the heat of the night he was almost in. He was almost in Jaws. Yeah. He was almost in so many movies. We finally have him. <laughs> and he's great. Yeah, he is. Yeah. And he's one of the best voices ever on film. Oh, my God. Right? 
yeah. from from Godfather to this, and yeah. I just saw The Killers for the first time the other night, which is Kubrick directed yeah. film, Killing and the Killing, sorry, The yeah. Killing, and he is the main guy yeah. in The Killing, and so to, he being used again by Kubrick in this film, so well done, the cigar, mm. the voice, the 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 force of will that he has throughout this whole movie, and then when you get the comical moment when he tells you why he did what he does, it's just brilliant. <laughs> Well, and, and this is one of those things. In this style of comedy is he plays everything yeah. completely straight. Yep. There is nothing played for laughs at all, which is what makes it so funny. He believes everything he's saying 100%. Oh, yeah. um, and we start right with this very strange moment where he mm-hmm. says to Mandrake, to Peter Sellers' character, do you recognize my voice? Mm-hmm. And right away, you can see Mandrake go, what's happening here? <laughs> and then we say, oh, this is code red, and we're in a shooting war. It's not an exercise, and we, it's time for plan R. Now, we don't know what plan R is, but you see from Mandrake's very British reaction, is it that bad, sir? Right. You know, that this is plan R. Something's big with plan R. Right. Uh, Ripper tells him to get all the radios, close down the blinds, alarms goes off, we have to arm the base, um, and something something big's going to happen. Yeah. And I always wonder, like, what this is, you know, like, you watched it for the first time more recently, um, is that what do you think... When you're watching this movie and you don't know what kind of movie you're in for at this moment. Well, I think in the, at this moment you're thinking, okay, what's been what's been the instigating event? Like, right, what, what's what, happened? What's happened? Who's done what? Because he, because Sterling Hayden immediately, and this is brilliant casting, immediately conveys someone who wouldn't be crazy, who wouldn't be right, who wouldn't, for lack of a better term, go off the reservation. He is absolutely a very strong, adamant person about what he's saying. And the way he's addressing Mandrake is a respectful way, too. He's like, do you recognize my voice? Do you know who it is who's talking? He's going through what he considers to be protocols. Right. So that he can convey to Mandrake that this is serious. And this is not a joke. Because Mandrake initially says, because even the body position, his legs are folded. Right? His Mm -hmm. leg is on top of the other leg. He's like picking at something. And then he says, oh, this this is an exercise. And he's like, it's not an exercise. It's real. Right. And that's when everything changes. He leans in more. He's having the conversation. So it's brilliant to cast this way because then you as an audience are like, oh, shit, what's happening? Like, what happened? You well, and it's interesting in terms of comedy. It's a good thing, I think, that we had the extremely phallic refueling sequence yes. to tell us that this is funny. <laughs> yeah, good point. Because there isn't really – this This is not funny. No. You know what I mean? This yeah. is like something big is happening, and we're going to cut off to – uh, the air wing and our B-52s. Yes. And we get a little voiceover, which we've had this is our second voiceover, telling us that these planes are up 24 hours a day with nuclear bombs two, several, just a couple hours away from their targets. Right. All of which is true. All circling around yeah. at a certain time and so certain the, pace. So they can be del- ready to deliver a bomb almost instantly. We go inside the bomber. Okay, slim pickings. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. He, uh, he, Magicom. I, he makes this movie for me in a lot of ways. Of course ways. he does. He is so great. Well, because we're Americans having grown up with, and there are people like this, people from the South who are like this. Very, They're just very, they're very down-home boys. They know they, they take responsibility. They take their job seriously. They follow protocol. They initially, He initially thinks they're joking or they're messing with right. him. He wants to come down and check to make sure the orders are correct. And that's the first glimpse that we have that this is real. This is serious shit. Even yeah. though we have that opening, this is serious shit because the reaction from all the other people on the crew. Which are is, subtle, which, but yes. are real. Yep. They feel very, very real and i love the sound of the plane you're in that plane with them oh, the yeah. sound effects in this film are fantastic when you're in that plane with them 
you're just like, oh man, I know what this sounds like. I know what this feels like. I haven't been in the military. I've been on an airplane, a military right. plane before. This is exactly what it sounds like. So it, you know, you get it. These quiet moments between them. They're and they're all like one of them's playing cards or whatever. Yep. So that one of them's reading. One of them's eating an apple. It's all just they're just passing the time, and then this shit just wakes them up out of their yeah. stupor, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Slim Pickens because he's a guy I don't think we're probably going to you know have another chance to give a good bio of. Yeah, maybe a couple, couple other things. Maybe, maybe. a couple of things. Yeah. Um, but uh, so what's interesting? <laughs> so you said you know, he's a Southern boy. Yeah. Here's what I found out today. Oh no. He's from California. Get the hell out of here. What is he, born, an accent like born, that? Born and raised in California, lived his whole life in California, died in California. What? Now, he's from California, like out in the uh, the Central Valley, like he's out uh, oh. Modesto. Oh, okay. Uh, and definitely grew up on a ranch. Yeah. So, th- And that's all real. And uh, so he grew up on a ranch, didn't really want to be a rancher, didn't want to be dealing with pigs all day. So he kept sneaking away to go do rodeo stuff because he's such a good writer. Right. And uh, his dad was against it. And so he's like, I got to I gotta stop using my own name. Shows up at a rodeo, and the guy running the rodeo looks at this skinny, scrawny, nothing, 16-year-old kid and says, I think it's going to be slim pickings for you at this rodeo. And that, and that's how he took that name. Holy crap. And that rodeo, he made $400. Wow. And he became pretty famous rodeo guy, both as a, a rider and then as a clown. Mm-hmm. He was a big rodeo clown for like 20 years. Wow. And then it's in the early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, he starts acting. And he's in a ton of stuff. Yeah, he is. I mean, just every Western show. Mm-hmm. He, lots of Western. He's with John Wayne. He's with all tons and tons of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, but uh, Dr. Strangelove changes his life. Yeah. Because he says from that point forward... The checks got bigger, the offers got bigger, the lines got bigger. And growing up, when we grew up, he was on the love boat. Yeah. He was on every single thing yeah. you could think of Slim Pickens would show up. He even shows up, well, of course, he's obviously in Blazing Saddles, but he's in yeah. 1941, even that debacle of Spielberg. He's yep. in that o- the funniest part of the movie, which is the whole opening. Yep. He is in the funniest part of the movie. So. Which was referencing Dr. Strangelove, of course. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And him and Scatman Crothers are the two for me, because of their names, because of their distinctive voices... And because of their appearances, that I always, whenever I see them, whenever I saw them in anything, I was always smiling as a kid because I knew I was going to have a good time with those guys. It's so funny you bring that up because I wasn't going to mention this, but Kubrick wanted Slim Pickens for another of his films, which is to play the Scatman Crothers part <laughs> in The Shining. Wow. Yeah. I can't, yeah. And, that makes complete and utter sense to me. It does. And yep. what, and what, and, uh, Pickens had a rough time with Kubrick. Oh, sure. As a lot of people do. Oh, sure. Um, he, and he did, uh, we'll get to a shot that there's a shot where it took well over 100 takes. <laughs> um, and he, his, he said, I will do another movie with, with Stanley, but we cannot go, I will not go over 100 takes. And he said, forget you. And that's when he hired Scatman Crothers. <laughs> yeah. I can't even imagine Slim Pickens in The Shining. That would just be weird. I mean, it's, I'm so locked in to, got, to what it is. He's got that yeah. ESP. He's got that ESP boy. I can't even imagine. It wouldn't work. <laughs> it would just be comical the whole time. Even yeah. in this film, when he's being serious, he's being comical. You know, he's playing. He's not playing it for last, but it's funny when he's even it's when he's funny being serious. It's slim Pickens. But, and I want to yeah. take a moment here, Steve, for just a second before we go for what I want to let people know is when you're listening to us do this, I want to throw this out there for you too. For me, the thing that struck me throughout the whole movie are the names, right? General Ripper. That's Jack the Ripper. The yeah. awesome Kong, this idea of a large beast, Kong, King Kong. Yeah. These references, 
when you get to the corporate, it's the bland corporation, right? Right. The uh, the premier kiss off, premier kiss off, right? The bur- the uh, the base is Burpala or Burpalagan yeah. or whatever it is, which is of course Burp. So these like these are Mel Brooks level jokes. Oh yeah, that he's sliding into this very intelligent satire. Yeah, don't forget Doctor Strange of the nuclear, right? Doctor Strange love, right? But then I was looking up Mandrake while you were talking, uh, and I wanted to see a, it's medit- a root. A Mediterranean plant of the yeah. Of course, he's a root. Yeah. Right? Because he's the one that's yeah. like, he's got the only foundation in this whole crazy situation. He is the one that's planted more firmly on the ground than anyone else. Uh, so it's all, yeah, just, it's sure. all just so brilliant the way it's done. Mendrick is the one person that isn't crazy through the whole thing. Yeah. He's being as respectful and considerate as possible. But when he has to use force, he uses it later on. Well, and he is clearly a hero. Yes. Like he, he's going to save the world eventually. Exactly. Um, and, of course, one of the pers- people we have not mentioned, or I don't think so yet, mm-hmm. is uh, young James Old Jones. Yes. Uh, this is the first film. and You can tell. And he's already great. He's bright and bushy tail. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he got cast because Kubrick was looking at another actor it, on Merchant of Venice and Shakespeare in the Park uh, to cast and saw James Old Jones and liked him a lot. Wow. The other actor was George C. Scott, <laughs> who was playing the lead in Merchant of Venice. And so that's, that's how he got cast in this film. Right. What's his name? Uh, Torgerson. Right. Yeah. Bucky. Bucky. Right? Yeah. Buck. Yeah. Yeah, young and buck. He, yeah. And he is a buck. Yep. Well, so we're on this plane, and the first thought that they have, which is the first thought that I have, is this plan R can't be real, right? Major Kong, is it possible this is some kind of loyalty test? You know, give the go code and then recall to see who would actually go. Ain't nobody ever got the go code yet. An old Ripper wouldn't be giving us plan R unless them Ruskies had already clobbered Washington and a lot of other towns with a sneak attack. You see it sort of sinking in with each of the crew members, and I think. They do a great job of subtly acting. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're really doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and he says to Slim says to them like, "Get confirmation from base." Yeah. Once they get confirmation from base, then Slim does this fantastic speech. Yeah. Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat, toe to toe with the Ruskies. And he gets his hat. Right. He lovely takes the helmet out. He gets his hat and gets the hat. Yeah. It's like okay, we're at a rodeo, son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that speech is, it's great. It's a great speech. Yeah. Now, I got a fair idea of the kind of personal emotions that some of you fellas may be thinking. Heck, I reckon you wouldn't even be human beings if you didn't have some pretty strong personal feelings about nuclear combat. But I want you to remember one thing. The folks back home is uh, counting on you, and by golly, we ain't about to let them down. And that's why he's the perfect choice. I think there's no way Peter Sellers, no matter what character he'd come up with, I think could have given the, uh, could have conveyed that kind of down home feeling that Slim Pickens does with that voice of his and the seriousness and the of the the timber of his voice is just so perfectly delivered. Well, know? and this is the thing I was thinking about is like dividing the difference between movie stars, actors, mm. character actors, yeah. and characters. Is that like Peter Sellers is a character actor? He yes. can become different people. Yeah. Slim Pickens can't become different people. Nope, Slim Pickens is Slim Pickens. He's a character. He is what he is. <laughs> yeah. And no matter how great Peter Sellers is, he can never beat somebody like Slim Pickens at his own game. Right. That's not possible. Slim's too authentic. Yeah. And 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 this is the first time we hear the the leitmotif, the musical theme for these guys, yeah. which is when Johnny comes marching home. Mm-hmm. Like as it's Civil War music, it's like American, this is adventurous we're going to do it right. and and the thing that i kept thinking watching this movies is like if you take what's actually happening away 
the guys in this plane are a bunch of heroes. Yes, they are. These are heroes. Which is what Slim says to them. Yeah. You will get, you know, if this thing turns out the way I imagine it's going to turn out, you guys are going to get recommendations. You're going to get awards. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. If you survive this thing. I was thinking about how comedic is this? Are people laughing? And I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think you're kind of grasping the situation right now. Yeah. Because they're earnest in what they're doing. They're not, yeah. they're not comical. Even when he puts on the hat, it's, not, it's more of a smile or smirk moment than right. it is a laugh it's not funny. moment. No. But now we're going to cut to George C. Scott. Yeah. <laughs> and we're, we move into the comedy. Now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he's with this girl who's a secretary. Who's, who's his secretary. Who's in a bikini. Yes. And uh, she's taking a phone call for him. She's sunning herself. Wait, sunning that's how they did them. back then. And they I had guess. lamps. I guess. Yep. And um, she's you know stalling for him, and mm-hmm. you kind of realize the reason she's stalling for him. He's, he's in the shit. can. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's taking a shit. shit. <laughs> um, and if, and the, the, the and we know that nuclear war is about to happen. Yeah. But something we're going to see over and over and over again is that you still have to go through the talking through people right. and normal human interactions while the clock is ticking on nuclear war. Yeah. Freddie, the thing is, the general is in the powder room right now. Could you tell me what it's about? Just a second. Apparently they monitored a transmission about eight minutes ago from Burpleson Air Force Base. Right. It was directed to the 843rd bomb wing on airborne alert. It decoded as wing attack, plan R. And George C. Scott keeps yelling out, you know, right. well, tell him to do this. He's already done that. Well, tell him this. It's already happened. And then the moment we go plan R, it's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Um, but even then, uh, Torgerson, Bucky Torgerson, is still not taking it as nearly seriously as I think he should. No. George C. Scott is so fantastic in this film. He's one of my favorite actors, bar none, Absolutely. for so many reasons. and. For me, he's like the better version of Lee J. Cobb. As great as Lee J. Cobb was, George C. Scott is like the next level of Lee J. Cobb. I, I think he's got a lot of gears Lee J. Cobb didn't have. That's what I mean. You know what he's I mean? just yeah, the I next agree. version. Yeah, yeah. He's, and he's got that same power. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, but, and, by the way, Roka and I just made the same hand gesture to demonstrate <laughs> what, what power. his power was. Right. It was refueling a plane. We just refueled a plane with our hands. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Hold on a second. Um, and uh, finally he says he's going to go. And, and even then he's still flirting with the girl on his way out. Of course. Where's my shorts? On the floor. Where are you going? No place. No, no place. I just thought I might uh, mosey over the war room for a few minutes, see what's doing over there. It's three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the Air Force never sleeps. Fuck, honey. I'm not sleepy either. Tell you what you do. You just start your countdown, and old Bucky will be back here before you can say, blast off! Oh, Jesus. oh my God. It's so weird. Yeah. It's, and uh, we go back to the Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ripper makes a speech to the men that they're going to have to fight to protect anyone from coming into the base, regardless of what uniform they're wearing, regardless of what they said. Trust no one. Fire on everyone. Yeah. And Mandrake listens to all this and is, hmm, <laughs> and is shutting down the computers and then finds a radio. Yeah. The radio's playing some nice music. Right. Huh. Because he had been told to, uh, to um, gather all the portable radios. 
mm-hmm. to make sure there's no communication issues or people trying to get right. through. And that's all at the time. That's all Ripper in his mind trying to make sure, trying to cover for every contingency so that no one could find out that he's actually making this happen without any provocation. Well, and this is what's interesting because up to this point, we don't know that. Yeah, we like, don't. Yeah, you know, it's like we, we don't go like, wait, is there something? What is going on? Why exactly. is this thing happening? But then the moment of hearing the radio. It's, oh, something strange is going on. Yeah. Mandrake is us. In, this, yes, in these yes, scenes, Mandrake is definitely us. Uh, we go back on the B-52, and now we hear what Plan R is. Right. Um, and Plan R is basically that Washington's been attacked, that the U.S. is in flames, and that they are the second strike, that, that they have to go in and wipe out the Soviets at the last minute. So mm-hmm. this is so the people in the B-52 are not only just reckoning with, oh, we're going to go drop nuclear bombs on someone, but potentially America is gone. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. Yep. And here's an interesting thing, by the way. So they had minimal research of what the inside of a B-52 looked like. They had like two pictures that were like kind of blurry, and then they just made it up. Wow. Um, and they just said, well, what do we think it would be like? And they looked at a lot of airplanes mm-hmm. and other kinds of planes that they could could research. And when the movie came out, the Air Force came after them because they said, how did you get it for right? You, so right, you must have had <laughs> classified documents in order to do the procedures so correctly. Right. Yeah, isn't that crazy? They sent Buck Torgerson after them. <laughs> exactly. How did you exactly. get the copies for the BBC 2 <laughs> Those are not released. They, and one little very small detail is that they switch the prefix on the radio receiver, which means that some code has to be used to get in, mm-hmm. and otherwise they will they're radio silent. They won't or not radio silent. They're blocking all other transmissions, mm-hmm. which means there's no one way to reach them without a code, right. which is going to become very important later on. And they have, by the way, these beautiful process shots out the window. Mm-hmm. So that means that they're rear projecting images on the screen, and what they did for these shots was they sent a bunch of guys to fly planes in the Arctic circle for like a couple of months. Wow. Um, maybe it's not quite that long and, and they look like nothing else. They are gorgeous, gorgeous shots of what's going out, out the window. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. Like this movie doesn't look like any other movie. No. Yeah. Uh, back at the airbase, um, uh, Mandrake brings Ripper the radio and he's kind of going, Oh, I, I think I found the solution. Mandrake. Yes, sir. I thought I issued instructions for all radios on this base to be impounded. Well, you did indeed, sir, and I was in the process of impounding this very wide when I hadn't switched it on. I thought to myself, our fellow's hitting Russian radar cover in 20 minutes, dropping all that stuff, I'd better tell you, because if they do, it'll cause a bit of a sting, huh? Your Captain, the officer exchange program does not give you any special prerogatives to question my orders. Well, I, I realize that, sir, but I thought you'd be rather pleased to hear the news. You know, after all... Let's face it, we, we don't want to start a nuclear war unless we really have to, do we? He's being very proper and he's being very polite. I don't want to contradict you, sir, but you know what, why is this music playing? And slowly, as he's having this conversation, he start, you could see Mandrake start to go, something's not right. Yeah. Um, what about the plan, sir? Surely we must issue the recall card immediately. Group captain, the planes are not going to be recalled. My attack orders have been issued and the orders stand. Well, if you'll excuse me saying so, sir, that would be, to my way of thinking, rather, well, rather an odd way of looking at it. You see, if a Russian attack was in progress, we would certainly not be hearing civilian broadcasting. Are you certain of that, Mandrake? No, that's a bit bothered to mind that. Sir. And what if it is true? Well, I'm afraid I'm still not with you, sir, because, I mean... 
If a Russian attack was not in progress, then your use of Plan R, in fact, your order to the entire wing, Yeah. Um, particularly when when Ripper says, "Go pour me a glass of grain alcohol and rainwater, and help yourself to whatever you need." <laughs> it's like grain alcohol and rainwater. Yeah, what's happening here? Right, and I think that's the moment because that he boy, starts to push back, right? Because he is. understands that something is wrong. Like you said, Stephen, he's like, "How am I gonna?" Okay, so he does it in a proper British way that he can. You yep. know? he comes to attention. Yes, he comes he to attention as a, as a member of Her Majesty's secret yep. blah 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 RAF. You know, I have to say this and this, and that's when Ripper goes, "Okay, so he's gone to the next level. It's time for me to go to the next level." Where he stands up and walks over and locks the doors. Yep, locks him in. Yep. Wow. I, I think that one of the things this movie does more than any movie I can think of, it is right on the edge of not being funny. Yes. It walks the line of like, no, it's not funny. And yet it is. It's mm-hmm. sta- and watching Mandrake, watching Peter Sellers in this, trying desperately to figure out how to properly deal with this situation. Yeah. It's really, really funny. He's trying to unlock Ripper with all the tactics that he can without violating military code right. or ethics. Right. It's fascinating. And there's a certain point where uh, time to violate it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's why I say it's like uh, Mandrake's training is now working against him. Yep. Because it's not the time to be polite anymore. The right. bombers are literally on their way. Right. And we get this great low angle shot of Sterling Hayden as he makes it, starts making his speech and he's got a gun. It's like, oh, this guy's crazy pants. Yeah. Mandrake, I suppose it never occurred to you and while we're chatting here so enjoyably, a decision is being made by the president and the Joint Chiefs in the war room at the Pentagon. And when they realize there is no possibility of recalling the wing, there will be only one course of action open. Total commitment. Um, and we find out what his plan is, which is that he wants to force the president of the United States to launch a strike. And the reason is, is that the, 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 the B-52 bomber wing that's heading out, that's not enough to destroy the Soviet Union or their ability to attack the United States. So what will happen is, is they will drop their bombs and the Soviet Union will counterattack and wipe out the United States. And so therefore, the only way for the U.S. to survive is to join the attack and launch all their missiles and all their bombs yeah. that they can and wipe out the Soviet Union in a preemptive strike. Yep. That's the plan. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah. Well, not so crazy. Because now I have to, I have to digress and talk about a, a thing. Okay. Uh, which is game theory. Okay. Um, so game theory is mathematical theory that started from this guy named Johnny Von Neumann. And Johnny Von Neumann, if you don't know who he is, he is, uh, there's Turing, who's the guy who invented the computer. Right. Johnny Von Neumann's probably the next guy. So he's a Hungarian guy who comes to the United States. He's one of the great mathematicians and scientists of all time. And he's super involved in the early development, not only of computers, but uh, trajectory, missile trajectory, rocket, you know, all those huge line of stuff. The guy's a super genius. Mm-hmm. And he, he loves playing poker. And while playing poker, because he loves probabilities and odds, he starts thinking, is there some perfect way to play games mathematically? Yeah. And he starts developing this thing called game theory with a bunch of other scientists, mostly at Princeton, including John Nash from Beautiful Mind. Wow. He's one of the other big game theory guys. 
and they come up with what's called the prisoner's dilemma. You know the prisoner's dilemma? No. Okay. So the prisoner's dilemma is this. It's a basic puzzle. It's okay. You're arrested for a crime along with a, another person who may or may not be your partner. We don't know anything about them. And you're each put in different rooms and they come to you and they say, did you, did, did the other guy do it? And you have two choices. You can either shut up and not mm -hmm. say anything, which we will say call cooperating. Yeah. Or we can say, or you can say he did it, which we would call defect. So these are your two choices. Right. And here are the possible outcomes. So if you, if both people defect, so they both betray each other, each of these people will get two years in prison. So you say he did it. He says you did it. You both get two years in prison. If one person defects and one doesn't, the so so you say nothing, and yeah. the other person says you did it. You get three years in prison. He goes free. Okay, mm. And if both people say nothing, each will only serve one year in prison. And the question is, well, what do you do? Without knowing any information about what's happening on the other side, what choice do you make? Right. And they ran this scenario a million different ways. They iterated it over time. They put it in computers. They tried different strategies. And what they came up with was that the best strategy, according to game theory, is to defect. And the reason is, is because your choices are, if you defect, either two years in prison or nothing. Where if you, if you cooperate, your choices are either three years in prison or one year in prison. Mm. And so it's a better deal mathematically for you to defect. Yeah. Now, if this was just a bunch of scientists playing little mind games with each other in Princeton, it wouldn't be a big deal. But these guys were tied into the military industrial complex, part of the Rand Corporation. And so... The reason they came up with the prisoner's dilemma is they say, this is the Cold War. We and the Soviets are each prisoners. And the first strike is to defect. So mm. are we better off firing our missiles first, unprovoked, or cooperating by not firing our missiles? And because the destruction is so major, if you, if you, if you do it wrong, so if you're cooperating and they shoot all your missiles, we get wiped out and we don't get to attack back. Right. Um, so they said, they argued, this is, again, the, some of the most brilliant people in the world went to the Pentagon and said, we should attack the Russians first right now. Hmm. And part of the reason that they did this was, that, let's say this is 1951, 52, something like that, is that we were at that time ahead of the Russians. Right. Okay. And so you, you want to do it before they catch up. Right. The more they catch up or even get ahead of you, then it gets more and more dangerous. Yeah. While we have more, more bombs than they have them, you know, like we had the atomic bomb before they did. We had the hydrogen bomb before they did. We had um, missile technology was similar, but we had more air, um, planes to carry them, mm -hmm. stuff like that. So we got to attack first. And so this idea of what Ripper is doing is lined up perfectly with a certain strategy, which fortunately Eisenhower and Kennedy said, no, we're not, yeah. we're not doing that. Right. And part of the reason I bring it up is I will guarantee you, I would bet money that this conversation is going on right now in the Pentagon in terms of North Korea. Oh, sure. Because they are de a developing nuclear power. Right. And the longer we wait, the more nuclear weapons they have. And so to defect, to wipe them out, yeah. there are people right now arguing that that might be the smartest thing to do. Hmm. I'm not saying it's the smartest thing to do. I believe that, that is, that's a holocaust. Yeah. But I think people are saying that. I'm sure they are. I just don't think they're at that level yet that, were, that the Soviets were at. No, but no, it's no, certainly a conversation all. to have. Yeah. But the, pro the problem with nuclear war mm -hmm. the pro is that one bomb's enough. Yeah. You know? Well, we saw that in Nagasaki and yeah. Hiroshima. Well, we saw and, that. And those are, those are atomic weapons. Yeah, those are atomic. Those, small. Are, those are like a few, few hundred kilotons. Yeah. We're talking about megatons. Yeah. You know? The bombs, I think, in Strangelove are 10 and 20 megaton bombs. Yeah. 
That's big. <laughs> That's big, yeah. Yeah. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. And of course, what is the reason that General Ripper is giving for this strategy? He doesn't want... The bodily fluids of Americans <laughs> to be infiltrated by Our these precious bodily yeah, fluids. precious bodily fluids by these Russian commie bastards. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify. All of our precious bodily fluids. <laughs> basically. <laughs> basically is what he said. And off of this yeah. huge bit of craziness, yeah. we cut to the war room. Well, is it, is it before we discover that he discovered this while having sex? Is that later? That's a little later. Okay. But I don't want to blow the wad, so to speak. Hey, oh. <laughs> anyway. Wow. Yeah. Okay. The best, the war room, which are my favorite fucking scenes in this whole it's unbelievable. movie. As a political junkie, to me, this is joy... Was it non-parallel joy? Is that the word? Is that the phrase? It is now. Okay. Uh, the war room is amazing. <laughs> I mean, from a design point of view, the war room is amazing. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's just like the blacks and the big circular light over the table and the huge round, ridiculously huge round table. <laughs> exactly. And the triangular big boards and all yeah. this. I mean, it is amazing. It all leans into itself. Yeah. 
And by the way, when they built the table, they put uh, green felt on the top because they wanted the actors to feel like they're sitting at a poker table. Because <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah. And what was interesting to me that I was thinking about, because this has come up multiple times on the show, yeah. is that at this time in Hollywood, color was for comedies and black and white was for dramas. Oh, interesting. This is as black and white as you can get. Yeah. And the blacks are black. Yeah. It is, it is like, it's like looking at a noir film. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is, and it is just gorgeous. So, it, and in addition to having this unbelievable design and cinematography, we have crazy, amazing performances. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one more thing about the war room. Mm -hmm. So, when Ronald Reagan's elected president, he gets to Washington, he's inaugurated, and you know what the first thing he wants to see is? The war room. The war room. It doesn't look like this at all. There wasn't one. There wasn't a there war, was room? No war room. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, by the way, there might be one now. Well, sure. I mean, yeah. yeah there's bunkers, or what they call them down there. Yeah. Uh, we get our second Peter Sellers performance. Oh man, this is my favorite. So great! It is amazing. Yeah. And I, I don't know when I first saw it. I didn't understand that those were the same people. <laughs> well, you know? that's it, that means it's like a job. High. Yeah. yeah. His performance is Mufford Milken or whatever his name is. Yeah. Another great name is. Amazing. Well, of course, milk, white toast, milk toast. He's milk white to yep. He's, he's yep. that. Yeah. Yep. The names are all there. Yeah. Uh, and Torgerson gives his report oh and says God. this is what's happening. The aircraft began penetrating Russian radar cover within uh, 25 minutes. General Turgidson, I find this very difficult to understand. I was under the impression that I was the only one in authority to order the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, that's right, sir. You are the only person authorized to do so. And although I uh, hate to judge before all the facts are in, it's beginning to look like uh, General Ripper exceeded his authority. It certainly does. The slow build of frustration as he's doing that, because like, he, he, I was in the military, I know fuckers like George C. Scott. They're, I know guys like that. Yeah, it's, it's played to a comical degree in this film, but I know guys like that, you know? I was served under people like that, and they... Very much. Everything is just like to the board. No question. This is everything's suspicious and blah blah blah. And you see the way he's delivering it, but he pushes and pushes and pushes, and you see how it builds within the president. He gets more and more frustrated with the things yep. that he's telling me he can't do or can do, and asking him all this information, which I think is brilliant because what's great about the screenwriting here in the in the scenes is everything builds logically. Everything oh, yeah. builds, which makes the comedy even more pronounced when it happens because. It, the foundation you've laid is a believable foundation. So when the comedy happens, you go, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And that makes crazy sense. First of all, we hear quotes from uh, Ripper about natu natural essence of our fluids, <laughs> at which point you even see this great reaction from George C. Scott going, oh, wow, that is crazy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. There's nothing to figure out, General Turgidson. This man is obviously a psychotic. Well, I'd like to hold off judgment on a thing like that, sir, until all the facts are in. General Turgidson, when you instituted the human reliability tests, you assured me there was no possibility of such a thing ever occurring. Well, I don't think it's quite fair to condemn a whole program because of a single slip-up, sir. Uh, and the president going, well, I got to talk to him. No, no, you can't talk to him. Well, I got to call the planes back. No, you can't call the planes back. Well, I got to do, you know, it keeps being yeah. that there is nothing that he can do. And in the midst of all this thing happens, Torkinson gets a call in the, in the, in the war room from his girlfriend. Yeah, of course. Told you never to call me here. Don't you know where I am? Well, look, baby, I can't, I can't talk to you now, but of course it isn't only physical. I deeply respect you as a human being. Someday I'm going to make you Mrs. Buck Turgidson. And this is where one of the things I kept thinking about in this movie is the problem of time 
And the problem of time is that the planes are on their way. Mm -hmm. There is no stopping it. So every second that is not focused on getting them back, every moment of the phone calls, yes. every moment of politeness, every bit of small talk is, is there 100 miles closer to destroying the world. Yep. You know, and that, and that is really scary. That's one of the scariest things about this uh, movie to me is just how, how, how little the margin for error is mm -hmm. because of time. Um, and the president's, um, wait, I thought the whole point was that only I could launch nuclear weapons. And they're like, well, it's <laughs> a little problem. And, and the thing is, yeah, and he keeps telling him, because he, the president keeps asking him these questions, and you're right, there's glee. But he is finding a way out of everything. Like, it's a master politician at work. Well, I wouldn't destroy an entire program because one thing went wrong. Right. And I wouldn't judge without getting all the facts first. <laughs> yep. I, these, I've heard these arguments from a certain, certain level of certain people in a certain spectrum over the last few months. Well, let's wait till all the facts are in. Let's wait till I wouldn't judge everything off one mistake. George C. Scott is doing this weird mix of bluster. Yes. And um, he knows that things have been fucked up. But he doesn't want to admit any of that. Yeah. And so he's kind of bowling through it. And then there's his frustration with uh, the president's not understanding the situation. Right. And then there's also this thing that grows and grows and grows, which is the glee. The, the like, we're really doing it. Yeah. You know, and I remember there's a moment in um, uh, Jarhead. Is that the, the... Yeah. Yeah. Where they talk about they're training to be assassins, yep. to be snipers. And there's this moment where he says, I haven't done it yet. I don't want to do it. And yet I've been training this whole time to do it. And I want to do it. And mm -hmm. I'm going to go crazy if I don't actually kill somebody. Right. And, you know, that's a that makes sense. Yep. And what's happened with George C. Scott is like, well, this is what we've been training for. <laughs> let's do it. You know, let's go do it. And then uh, and then what he says at the end, he says, well, Mr. President, I think we should attack them. Because if they don't, if they don't, uh, if, they, if they're going to attack us, we should attack them. And what you said is it's the it's a combination of bluster and also confusion that the president doesn't feel the exact right. same way that he does. Mr. President. One or two points I'd like to make, if I may. Go ahead, General. One, our hopes for recalling the 843rd bomb wing are quickly being reduced to a very low order of probability. Two, in less than 15 minutes from now, the Ruskies will be making radar contact with the planes. Three, when they do, they are going to go absolutely ape, and they're going to strike back with everything they got. Four, if... Prior to this time, we have done nothing further to suppress their retaliatory capabilities. We will suffer virtual annihilation. Now, five, if, on the other hand, we were to immediately launch an all-out and coordinated attack on all their airfields and missile bases, we'd stand a damn good chance of catching them with their pants down. Hell, we got a five-to-one missile superiority as it is. We could easily assign three missiles to every target and still have a very effective reserve force for any other contingency. Six, an unofficial study which we undertook of this eventuality indicated that we would destroy 90% of their nuclear capabilities. We would therefore prevail and suffer only modest and acceptable civilian casualties from the remaining force, which would be badly damaged and uncoordinated. Right? It's that overwhelming sense of 
patriotism or overwhelming sense of joy of being a military man that is overriding his sense and his uh, like a human sense about what the repercussions of this whole situation is, you know. And no one does a better furrowed eyebrow than George C. Scott when he's not understanding he's what the president. Yeah, yeah. he's frustrated and understand what the president is saying, well, or he's goes, being put in his place. He doesn't like it. Yeah. Well, it goes back to that quote which I think I brought up before in the Cinephiles, which is Stalin, which is one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Yeah, right. you know, and that it's they're not thinking about in this movie what a nuclear bomb means George right. C. Scott is thinking about what do we do to win? Yeah. You know, which is the military response. Yeah. And, and you know, to some degree, that's what you want the military response. To sure. Be. sure. That's also why you hopefully want things in place to curtail that. And a president that has the moral structure to right. keep that from happening. This portrayal of the president is so great. Yeah. And in the more human exchanges, which we'll get to later with the premier, with the Russian Premier, these are my those are some of my favorite exchanges of Peter Sellers acting. Oh, they're amazing because it's so believable of a normal phone conversation you would have in a situation like this. Well, well let's get there. So, yeah. so, so, we talk about attacking the base, and you even get this moment where the army guy and the air force guy are kind of bickering about whose <laughs> whose guys are tougher, right? Exactly. You know, um, and we're going to go attack the base. And as you say, Torgerson makes this impassioned speech about first strike. Yeah, and the president says he would never strike first, and this is this is one of the things too is that the idea of a deterrent only works when the other side thinks that you will attack first. If yeah. you say, and this goes to what's happening with Korea right now, if you say I will never attack first, you no longer have a deterrent, right? Because you open up for the other side to attack first. One of the things that Reagan did and talks about that he did is he wanted the Soviet Union to think he was crazy enough to do it. Yeah, and that. Now, whether or not you agree with that's a good policy or you liked President Reagan or not, it's certainly the Russians did think that. They mm -hmm. thought, man, this guy's... And that made them very nervous. Yeah. And that makes the deterrent stronger. Mm -hmm. And certainly Donald Trump saying, we will rain down fire and fury the likes of what the world has never seen, gives that same impression. Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't think he is as... Um, well, I don't know how manipulative exactly. he is. About, yeah. Exactly. And maybe that's good yeah maybe or maybe. crazy or terrible for us because kim jong-un is the same way yeah he is so unstable more so if it was possible more so than his father was so and everyone who has escaped from north korea who's gotten close to him in terms of his, uh, in the military or politically they all say he is one of the most unstable people you will ever have any communication or contact with, which is why he just randomly kills family members for yep. perceived slights or whatever, you know, and it's just madness. He's doing what crazy dictators do. And I know that if Trump didn't have all these r rules in the Congress, he'd be doing the same thing. I a thousand percent believe that. Well, this is one of the scary things. That's why I'm scared. Well, this is why this is a scary podcast, friends. Exactly. Here's a little bit of scary information. If you're going to be the guy in the bunker that's got to send out the nuclear weapon, or you're going to be one of those guys in our B-52, or you're going to be a guy in a nuclear submarine, you go through extensive psychological testing, yeah. and there are a tremendous number of backups and fail-safes to prevent any crazy person, like General Ripper, yeah. from launching nuclear weapons. Except... There is one person for which that is not true. Yeah, the president. And, and that is the president. Which is mad. There is literally not, if he says tomorrow, launch nuclear weapons, there is no, nothing to stop him. Right. 
That is the system that we have. Mm -hmm. the, he does not have to talk to the Secretary of Defense or Secretary of States or Congress. Yep. And the reason that it was put that way is particularly with ICBMs is that the time to make that decision might be 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so they said, because the time is so fast, nobody we, just has to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, that's Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, and that's what's scary. However you feel about him, that's makes me pretty nervous yeah yeah well and what we see here in this scene is they put in this fail safe in case the president was taken, was taken out, out or or anybody who would have had access to it. so what general ripper is doing he's doing because he understands that this fail safe was put into motion and put into motion by this same president peter sellers character yeah. that he's playing yeah i love this this moment where where bucky says well ripper has already invalidated that policy yeah. <laughs> he even says in his speech he says i'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. Uh, yeah, like it's nothing. Yeah. yeah. And then we find out that the ambassador, the Russian ambassador, oh, is coming to the war room. This guy's great, too. Um, and we want to get Premier Kissoff <laughs> on the phone. If we didn't know that it was a comedy, Premier Kissoff. That's yeah. full comedy. Yeah, it's full comedy. Uh, and while the ambassador is heading over, we go back to our B-52, and we get another great monologue from Slim Pickens as he unpacks the survival kit. Yeah. <laughs> One pack of prophylactics. Survival kit contents check. In them you'll find 145 caliber automatic, two boxes of ammunition, four days concentrated emergency rations, one drug issue containing antibiotics, Morphine, vitamin pills, pep pills, sleeping pills, tranquilizer pills, one miniature combination Russian phrase book and Bible, $100 in rubles, $100 in gold, nine packs of chewing gum, one issue of prophylactics, three lipsticks, three pair of nylon stockings, Shoot, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. Like, it's a great, great monologue. And at the end of the monologue, is like he says, man, you could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with this. <laughs> Except that is not the line. Oh. That is dubbed. Wow. And what this was is, the line? The line was originally Dallas. And the oh. reason it was changed is, do you know what the premiere date of this film was supposed to be? November 22nd? 1963. Damn. The day Kennedy was killed. Wow. And so they changed the line from, and so they didn't screen it that day. Right, right. Of and course. they changed the line from Dallas to Vegas. Yeah. And and I was thinking about something else, and this because you kind of brought it up before, yeah. is that you know we've talked about in talking about all the president's men and apocalypse now these shattering moments in American history, mm. where with Watergate and the Vietnam War and going on with Iran Contra and other events mm -hmm. since then, that have shaken the faith that happened that we saw in the right stuff and doesn't exist anymore today right. in America and patriotism and all those things, and the event we didn't talk about enough is the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. Is that to me, I don't know if that lights the fuse or if that is the first explosion or the first, that is the first moment. And I think the fact that Kennedy is killed and right after it, Dr. Strangelove comes out. Yeah. I think that does a lot to change American culture and the rise of the counterculture yep. and the Because Kennedy, and I don't mean this in terms of who he really was, right. but the perception of Kennedy is he was a great American hero. He's he the, was the yeah. last of the sort of shining mm -hmm. examples of American presidents. Yeah. And I would agree with that. And he gets killed. And then this movie comes out that, that just shatters mm -hmm. 
our view of the people in charge. I would agree that he was the he was the best example that we wanted to be visually. He was he was oh yeah still learning on the job. Yes, he cheated on his wife left and right. Not a great morality to him, but he also was he's one of these guys that escaped that stigma because of his looks, because of his earnestness, his nobility, his desire charisma, to change his, the world's charisma, all yeah. of it. He was the best of us. And when he was taken down like that, you're right, there has never been a president since. Johnson had his issues. Nixon had his issues. Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, W., all the way up, uh, Obama and even... Obama is the closest we've probably come to Kennedy. And then uh, uh, what we have now with Trump. So no one has ever, you know, he's just what he was. And that's why his assassination was... I mean, people cried in other nations. When's the last time someone cried for a president from our nation sure. dying? Like, people cried in other nations. And that's madness. Well, and the and I think it's the... It's it's Kennedy the person, but it's the idea of the presidency. What he represented, yes. Yeah, and, and that... Because I think before... Kennedy's assassination and before Strangelove, mm -hmm. I think there was, you know, you had uh, FDR and you had Truman and you right. had Ike, is that there was a sense, I think, that whether you agreed with those people or not, mm -hmm. that they were grown ups. Yes. And that they could take care of things like the power to destroy the world. Yes. And when you watch Dr. Strangelove, you go, oh shit. Yeah. They're just people. They're just people. They, they, I can't actually trust them with this power. Yeah. And yet they have this power. And that's what's you know, happening in this film. Yeah, so through the whole, that's the incredible undercurrent through the whole film. Yeah. Russian ambassador comes in um, and uh, immediately, and we see Torgerson sort of clutching a binder to his chest. He's very upset that the Russian ambassador is going to see the big board. He almost looks like a college kid holding his books, yep. you know? And, and, and they're trying to get the premiere on the phone. Apparently, the premiere of Russia is drunk and with his mistress. Yes. And while yeah. we're trying to do that, uh, George C. Scott and the Russian ambassador start wrestling. <laughs> and we have one of the great lines of all time. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> you can't fight in here. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. Um, but it, he was right. Buck's suspicions are proved correct because he does have the camera. Yeah, he's, yeah. he has a camera. He's, so even in the midst of nuclear Armageddon, they're still playing their fucking game, yep. their little game, yep. you know, of one-upsmanship. And uh, we have a quick cut to the attack on the base. Mm -hmm. And then Mandrake's in the room with uh, Ripper as this attack is happening. And now we get to what you brought up before, the call with Premier Kissoff. Yeah. I've done as you asked. Be careful, Mr. President. I think he is drunk. Hello? Uh, hello, De hello, Dimitri. Listen, I, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, oh that's much better. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then... Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. <laughs> I think this is, the, this is the greatest moment in the film. This monologue. <laughs> uh, it, it's just a one-sided phone call. It's just great. But Peter does such a great job conveying what the other person is saying. His stops, his starts... His trying to get his words out in a certain way, his reaction to what he, he imagines as being 
said on the on the other end of the line. It's just all of it brilliant, you know. And Amazing. It's so funny. It's and it's so funny. Well, what's this, uh, so several things about this. First of all, this is right after two of the biggest stand-up comedians in the world, Shelley Berman and Bob Newhart, and this is their style, oh, is doing the phone call. Wow. And if you go back and listen to the, some of those albums, uh, there's Shelley Berman who's like cr- calling across the street to like a, a, a department store where a woman is hanging out the window and he keeps getting transferred and is trying to get <laughs> someone to save the woman. And there's Bob Newhart who's like, I can't remember what it is now. Yeah. Uh, there's some really funny Bob Newhart. Oh, I'll have and, to listen to and these. So, they're great. They're, I'm they're sure fantastic. They and Peter Sellers is obviously doing the same thing. And what's oh. interesting, by the way, the myth of Kubrick is that he knew everything in advance and he was just executing what he had in his head. Yeah. There's a lot of improv here. Oh, it's Peter so, Sellers. Yeah. You can't put him in a box. No. Yeah. And, what, and, and the last thing is it goes to the same thing we're t- saying with Mandrake is the planes are on their way. Yeah. But we're talking about, <laughs> yeah, I would call to say hello. Of course, I like talking to you. <laughs> it's, we're t- in this human interaction because we have no way to escape it. But it's also believable because he's drunk. Totally. And he's with his mistress. So he's not really thinking straight, is he? He's more sensitive, more vulnerable because he's drunk. I love the way he sort of sheepishly said, we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong (laughs) with the ball. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders he had a sort of well he went a little funny in the head you know just a little funny and uh he went and did a silly thing it's just so great yeah it's like he's having to talk to like his love or his (laughs) wife he's just having to talk to his wife about fuck about crashing the car yeah that's what it feels like he's like oh and what you always do is you always minimize what and this is by the way we gave George C. Scott's character a hard time for not really taking responsibility, but that's exactly what the president's doing now. Yep. Is yep. he's minimizing? He he went and did a silly thing, <laughs> <laughs> a silly thing. Right. He's starting nuclear war. Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen. How do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. It's it's hilarious. And throughout all of this, you're cutting to George C. Scott and seeing his reactions which are and his gum chewing his gum chewing is everything oh and yeah we have the ambassador sort of watching on and i love that in what they're going to do is we're going to give the russians the ability to to shoot down the planes yeah which really pisses off george c scott oh, terrible you see it in his face it is 100 percent seem to be the right decision as far as i'm concerned of course it is um unfortunate it's unfortunate but it's true yeah yeah no it's horrible but yeah. it is the right decision and then in order to get to the strategic air command of the russians we have to call omsk and he's like well what's the number well just call information and this is where i get this thing about time it's like of course we have to call her. How right. are we going to get the number? This and is then, where the comedy is. And then you're going to have to talk to someone and explain right. what's... No, I'm really... I am the American president, yeah. but I'm calling... I talked to the premier, really. <laughs> no, I just got off the phone with him. You know, you can imagine trying to make this stuff happen. Yeah. 
I see. Just ask for Omsky information. How, I, uh, mm. I'm sorry too, Dimitri. I'm very sorry. All right, you're sorrier than I am, but I am sorry as well. I am as sorry as you are, Dimitri. Don't say that you're more sorry than I am, because I'm capable of being just as sorry as you are. So we're both sorry. All right. All right. Well, well, no, I'm. Sh- I'm not. I know you're sorry, but I'm sorry but too. But I'm sorry too. Okay, fine. You can. I can be just. I don't. You think I'm capable of being just as sorry as you are? I just was like, it's so fucking true. Then we look over at the ambassador, and it seems like even though we think we might have solved the problem, something else is wrong. Right, because the ambassador gets on the phone and starts talking to him in Russian. Yep. And then he hangs up the phone solemnly and that's right. when the president is like what what's going on we hear about something called yeah. the doomsday machine yes <sighs> and then we leave and we go back to the office well wait no he explains the doomsday machine doesn't yet. he or do no, no. not yet okay or yeah no. yeah Sorry. right we hear doomsday machine and then okay. we go back to the office where mandrake is sitting with ripper and ripper's got his arm around mandrake and now we hear mandrake yes dad have you ever seen a commie drink a glass of water? Well, yeah, I, I can't say I have, Jack. <laughs> Vodka. That's what they drink, isn't it? Never water? Well, I, I believe that's what they drink, Jack, yes. On no account will a commie ever drink water, and not without good reason. Oh, uh, yes. I am... Um... Can't quite see what you're getting at, Jack. Water. That's what I'm getting at. Water. And then, you know, machine gun fire starts to hit the building, and he goes over, grabs his golf clubs, and pulls out a big ass machine gun, <laughs> and wants Mandrake to help. Mandrake <laughs> says he has a gammy leg or something, <laughs> and you can see he's still trying to go. What do I do? Yeah, yeah. What am I supposed to do in this situation? Uh, wow. And now we're back in the war room, and now the ambassador explains what the doomsday machine is. Wow. Which is basically, if a nuclear bomb goes off, we will destroy the world. Yeah. That's it. It's, and it's something only they have. And, I, and everyone reacts perfectly to it, mm-hmm. right? Because the president is overwhelmed by it. The Russian uh, ambassador is uh, almost stupefied because he's like, fools, fools. Yeah. He's almost mad. He's mad at his own people, his own leader for even, con- even putting this in motion. Right. Well, there's this moment. There's this moment in here where George C. Scott is backing up and talking and yeah. falls yeah. and rolls and pops right back up. It's still just going. Still going and points at the map. Ah, it's an obvious commie trick, Mr. President. We're wasting valuable time. Look at the big boy. They're getting ready to clobber us. And you know they cut there because he was not supposed to fall at all. But uh, it works. I, I, the fall is astounding. It's like just an amazing moment. And, and by the way, so Kubrick's technique with directing George C. Scott is very much what he did to Nicholson. Oh. Is that George C. Scott did not want to go this far. He wanted to play it sort of straight and serious. Right. And they just did take after take. <laughs> After take until he was getting the actors get pissed and angry and crazy like well this is what you want until he goes out of control and Kubrick's like yes that's what I wanted there that's what I want and you could see it he is exploding yeah. you know in this movie but it works because Kubrick has laid the foundation for that character to exist in this panorama of yeah. nuttiness it yeah. makes sense and we get to this moment where we talk about we have to keep up with their doomsday device because we cannot have a doomsday gap. Yeah, we cannot have a doomsday gap. And, so, and then the question is, well, have we tried to get a doomsday device? And they say, Dr. Strangelove. There it is. Right, Dr. Strangelove. How are we up. doing on this? And now we get 
Wow. <laughs> I, there's really not words to describe <laughs> this performance from Peter Sellers. Well, genius, I would think. Sure. Yeah, it's fantastic. But it's great. It's insane. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. insane. Out rolls this guy in this wheelchair with this black hand and these weird glasses and this great hair with this German accent. And he is just like eight, eight kinds of crazy. Mr. President, it is not only possible, it is essential. That is the whole idea of this machine, you know. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. And so because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process which rules out human meddling, the doomsday machine is terrifying. It's, it's simple to understand and completely credible and convincing. Gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines, Dainty. Right, which is a play on the fact that, you know, Germans were the ones that, 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 yeah. that weren't able to sneak out and then helped with the nuclear war effort on yeah, the American this is, side. this is Werner von Braun. Yeah. I mean, this is, we saw a different version of Werner yeah. von Braun in Right Stuff. This <laughs> yes. is another, is like, this is some crazy German still in love with his Fuhrer, yeah. obsessed with war. I mean, he's an insane performance. The fact that his hand is involuntary, to me, <laughs> I really believe... Uh, very firmly that Mel Brooks stole this for what's his face in Young Frankenstein, for oh. the, for I forget because it's almost the same the the, yeah. the patch over the eye you're right because with the sunglasses but the arm the black in the glove totally. involuntarily doing what it wants to do you yeah. know that kind of thing. even the salute is there he does a little salute even in the in the, oh, yeah. in, in Young yeah. Frankenstein so yeah so, so what small bit of trivia the black glove is Kubrick's glove that he used to adjust lights. <laughs> that Sellers just said, let me have that. Here's a question for you. Why is this movie called Dr. Strangelove? Or even bigger, why is this movie called Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb? That's a good question. He's not a big character. No. He's not in the movie that much. No, but he is the guy that when they have the conversation, he is the guy because they verify the Doomsday Machine through him because he is the guy... He symbolizes the people who created this whole situation. Right. If they hadn't created the bomb, we wouldn't be in this fucking situation, right? They would. They, both sides wouldn't have it. This whole detente that's going on, this whole possibility now with Ripper's actions, none of this would be happening without Doctor Strange's love. And how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. This whole idea is there, right? It's like, well, fuck it. If we're gonna, we gotta live. So how we gotta figure this out? How we can figure this out? Which is what George C. Scott's plan is the whole time. You know, trying to survive this thing. Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I think you really put your finger on it right at the beginning when you talked about all the names. Yeah. Is that, is that strange love. Yep. This guy, what is strange love? Because this is not an accident. It's a weird name. It is. And this is Kubrick. So, yeah, you know, strange love. And I think and we started with this refueling that was very phallic mm -hmm. and sexual. Mm -hmm. and we have George C. Scott, who's very sexual. And we have uh, the ending that we're going to get to about the mines mm -hmm. and ten women to one guy. Yeah. And strange love, and I think it is the strange love we, particularly men, have for power. That's fantastic. And how we learn to stop worrying and love the bomb. Right. And this is all about, you know, yeah. back to Tarantino's dick, 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 dick. Exactly. Is that I think the George C. Scott and Doctor Strange Love and General Ripper, they have hard ons for violence. Yep. That's what strange love is. That's what drives them up a patriarchal society is violence. I suppose it does. I, no, I, 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 I can't argue the point. That's why I like hanging out with the bonobos, man. It's like have, let's have a matriarchal society um, because the idea of loving power, you know, yeah, they're, they're, 
Listen, there are uh, pros and cons of both. I would say there are pros and cons of both. I've, we've tried one for a long time. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I'm happy to try a major side and see yeah. what happens. Um, oh, and then we get to this idea. So we, so we talk about the doomsday device and mm. the, can we develop our own doomsday device and doomsday gap? And then we get to this idea of deterrence, which is in order to have a deterrent work, yeah. you have to tell people about it. So they said, why do you keep the doomsday device a secret? Which is what Strangelove uh, accuses the uh, ambassador. Right. They're like, why? Why? Yeah. And the reason is, is they had a bit, they're going to announce it next week at the big, you know, party anniversary or something. You know how we like surprises. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, that makes perfect sense. Too, of course it does. Because of course you announce the thing when it's a good time to announce exactly. the thing. Oops, it didn't work out really well. <laughs> right. And in the meet, while all of this is happening, the, the U.S. Army is attacking the U.S. Air Force Base. Right. And this is, interestingly enough, shot entirely differently. We're in handheld, little handheld cameras. Oh, wow. The lighting's different. Like, the whole feel of it is, it feels yeah. very real. It feels Agreed. documentary style. It does. As they're, as they're heading in. And uh, Ripper is standing up and firing that machine gun out the window. And this, after this little bit of battle, this is where he gives, finally, the information about when he just... Dis- discovered the Russians trying to feel, steal our precious bodily fluids. Ah, yes. Uh, Jack, Jack, listen, tell me, tell me, Jack, when did you first become, well, develop this theory? Well, I, uh, I, I first became aware of it, Mandrake, during the physical act of love. Huh. Yes, a, uh, a profound sense of fatigue feeling of emptiness followed. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I, I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. Loss of essence. Yeah. I can assure you it has not recurred, Mandrake. Women, uh, women sense my power, and they seek the life essence. I do not avoid women, Mandrake. Yeah. But I, I do deny them my essence. Sex. It all comes down to sex. Yeah. The whole movie. And again, it's you know, if you cast anyone other than Sterling Hayden, because he just delivers this as this is the most serious, yeah, and honest yeah. and like truthful thing he could possibly say. I do not avoid women, but I do deny them my essence. <laughs> yeah, and uh, oh, and fluoridation is also a problem. Fluoridation, right? When the liquid, yeah, yeah, it's also a problem. There is a huge group of conspiracy theorists about fluoridation, by the way. <sighs> Jesus. Um, and at this point, Mandrake is really starting to, send, to stand up to him. Yes. He wants to recall the wing. He wants the codes. He's still trying to be reasonable about the whole thing. Um, and you can see Ripper is starting to lose it. Yeah. And he asks Mandrake, have you ever been a prisoner of war? Um, and Mandrake has. Yeah. He says, yes. And he asks, have you been tortured? Yeah, he's been tortured. Yeah. This British, proper, polite person seems like he's been through more than Ripper has ever been through. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and I love... Which is, once again, a very subtle stab at the whole idea. This idea... Oh, yeah. This guy who's never experienced anything but is in love with this idea of being in the military and having these weapons at his disposable, as a disposal, rather, doesn't understand it, what it's actually like to be in war, yeah. what it's actually like to suffer through war, to be a prisoner of war, to... So, and so that's why you can have all this hubris and heck, you can have all this like gumption to violate the laws because you don't understand the real consequences right. of what's going to happen because you've never viscerally experienced them. Mandrake has. Yeah. And that's important. And then, of course, his strange comedic line about it is, I think it was just their way of having fun, the swines. <laughs> strange thing is they make such bloody good cameras. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and then we see that Ripper's going through his whole own thing. I don't know if I could stand up to torture. Yeah. He's try- Mandrake's trying to get the codes. And he's, I have to have an answer. And Ripper goes into the bathroom. And Mandrake is still talking to him when Ripper shoots himself. Yeah. I knew Ripper's going to kill himself. Of course. Yeah, there's just no... Mandrake can't get in the doors. And, of course, back on the B-52s, we're being under attack from the Soviets now. Right. And taking evasive action. And this is good action sequence. And mm-hmm. it goes back to taking the context of the movie away. These are heroes. Yep. And they are in a heroic battle to do the right thing. That's in their what, minds. In their minds. Yep. That is how they see what's happening. Right. And they just, you know, the plane is going down. It's on fire. They're trying to put out the fire. They heroically save the plane. And back we get Johnny comes marching home. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's this, this is this weird thing this movie does is I'm rooting for them. Yeah. Because I really like them. I'm rooting for them to live. I'm not rooting for them to carry out the mission. Well, if, yeah, that's what's weird though yeah. about them is that, but they don't know that the mission nope. is a bad thing. And there's, so there's this weird... And maybe that puts you in this weird emotional place with the the military trying to carry out the plan, even if yeah. the plan's horrible. Yeah. You know? Which, you know, the US military has been sent to do some things that maybe weren't such good things. Exactly. And that doesn't mean I don't feel for the men and women of our military. Exactly. Uh I do. And they're heroic and talented and proud right. and hardworking and disciplined right which is why that whole child killer bullshit and when they and uh, when the soldiers were coming back from vietnam they were being yelled at by these hippies being yelled at in the airports when their bags of shit were being thrown at them they're being accused of killing uh, children and uh, mothers and all this stuff in their battles by people who had never ever stepped over there never ever experienced it at airports we didn't receive our heroes back correctly from vietnam well, well that's so, what's so sad is that if you're angry about the war in Vietnam, and yeah. I, w- I would have been angry sure. at the war in Vietnam, Take it out on you're leaders. yelling at the wrong people. Exactly. Those are people, they, 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 a guy that was drafted, and you don't know what that guy did. Nope. You know? I mean, are there incidents where the U.S. military did things that weren't sure? Sure. sure. But we don't know that that's the guy you're yelling at. Exactly. And, and the reality is it's the people that sent them there that, are, that, are, that were in charge. Mm-hmm. That's the people to be yelling at if you didn't like the war in Vietnam. Right. Back in the back in the Air Force Base, Mandrake is reading about precious, precious bodily fluids and purity of essence and peace on earth and purity of essence in <laughs> P O E. That is, is the code. And just when he's figured out in the code, in walks this colonel who has taken <laughs> over the base, who's not very smart. No, the actor named Keenan Wynn, who you've oh. seen in just a million things. I've seen him in westerns. I've seen him in a million things. Yeah, all sorts of TV shows. Yes, yeah, all sorts of stuff. And. <laughs> Another one of the great voices. Yeah. And Mandrake is like, okay, I just want to call. I'm going to call the president. And the phone's broken. I'll call this one. And the wire's cut on that phone. And the guy thinks he's some kind of pervert or something. Yeah, a prevert. A prevert. You're a prevert. Yeah. That's what he calls him, which I love that. Yeah. On the B-52, they manage to get out of this fight, but their radio is damaged. um, And and they're leaking fuel. And now it's suddenly become a suicide mission, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, you know, now we're flying low to avoid radar. The, The process shots are amazing. The amazing shots we're looking at. Yeah. Um, the back on the uh, Air Force Base, Mandrake is arguing passionately. I am the EXO. You have to let me make a phone call. Let's go to the phone booth. Oh, the phone booth is working. He doesn't have enough change. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> right? And he says he wants to get a collect. He's trying to make a collect call on the, the president. And the clock is, this goes back to this mm-hmm. time, the clock is ticking. It's like, well, what are you going to do? There is no faster way to do these right. things. And once again, he won't fight him, like physically. He won't no. knock him out. Or he has, he's following the code yeah. that is his military code. He could, 
He convinces him to shoot the Coca-Cola machine. Which I love. Is which that... he's resisting. Okay. I'm going to get your money for you. But if you don't get the President of the United States on that phone, you know what's going to happen to you? What? You're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. What a great line. Yeah. It's private property. Yeah. It's like, are you kidding? <laughs> Do you understand what is happening? I don't know how Coca-Cola allowed them to product place Coca-Cola. Maybe they didn't understand I don't, the I don't think they had to at this point. No, oh, no, 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 no. Of course they did. What are you talking about? That's a big... I mean, why else would you even have the line in the film if, if you didn't know that he... You really think that Coca-Cola didn't or approve them using their... I don't know if in 1963 they had the same rules about showing a Coca-Cola in a... In really? A, I don't know. I have no idea. I'd be surprised if a corporation in this country that big would allow a film to make fun of it without its approval. Are they it's, making fun of it? They are when they say, you're going to have to answer the Coca-Cola Corporation. It's played for jokes. It's a joke, but I yeah. think what it's saying is Coca-Cola is unbelievably powerful. Yeah, like, I don't know if that's... I it's, right. It seems fairly complimentary. And then he gets doused with Coca-Cola. Well, and it's also like <laughs> Coca-Cola is a symbol of America, post-World yes. War II America. True. Like, it is... Coca-Cola is America. Right. Particularly that era. Uh, and yeah, he gets doused with Coke... And now we cut to the war room, mm-hmm. and we find out the recall code has worked. Yep, and the bomb wing is returning. Some have been destroyed, uh, but we're going to be okay. Yeah, Torgerson leads the group in prayer. Oh my god, the balls on this guy! Yeah, he's got he's got the jacket off. He stands atop the chair. He strides the chair. Yeah, and he's just like those of us who are you know blessed to survive all that kind of jazz. Yep. Oh. And during this is an amazing shot of strange love in the shadows. Yes. Just an amazing shot. And of course, we know that this is, that we're not good yet. Hmm. Um, we hear from Primar Kissoff that he's hopping mad. Um, we go back quickly to the B 52. We get this call from the premiere, and one of the planes has not uh, turned back. Yeah. Because there were, they said four planes shot down. I was like, well, four planes engaged, three shot down, one yeah. has not turned back. You look like you're deep thought about something. Yeah, it just occurs to me now. And maybe I'm wrong, Steve. I'm not as smart as everyone else. And you, like, ah, uh, is this the is this the id, the ego, and the superego? What mm. what would strange love be in this definition? I don't think I don't think we're in the id, the ego, and the superego. No, ego. But, which, 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 which the president three? Buck and Doctor Strange Love in that war room, mm. the three representatives of the American side of things. Well, because um, so, the id seems Buck. Yeah, I mean the it is the 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 full passions and desire. Yeah, um, and the superego is the logical, uh, which is the president, which would be the president. But I don't think Strange Love is the ego. You don't? No. Okay, define the ego. I'm not sure if I can as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel not... like he is. Okay. Possibly. Okay. Because of this, it makes me think of it because of what you said—the shot in the shadows. Yeah. He's watching it all, and yeah. he's getting off on it. Yeah. He's getting off on it. Yeah, I don't know that I can give a... I, if I wish I had a better okay. ego definition in my fingertips. Okay. I'm going with that. I, I, uh, you sold me. <laughs> um, All right, anyway. Um, so, yeah, one of the planes doesn't come back. Yeah. Or and, isn't accounted for. And, to, of course, Torgas is like they're lying about the fourth plane. Right. Um, I smell, Mr. President, once again, Mr. President, I smell a Russian, a Russian trick. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and now we're trying to find out, is this going to set off the doomsday machine? We're on the phone. Again. Um, and, and basically he says, send your whole entire air defense yeah. to stop this one plane. And this is where we get into. There's no point in being hysterical. Yeah, this is well, the hysterical yeah, this part. is where this thing happens. Yeah, um, and, and they say oh, this is the primary target. This is the secondary target. Right. If you just go to those places, there's no way you can't stop them. Except 
We're back on the B-52. They're running out of fuel. They can't get to either the primary or the secondary. Right. They pick a new target that they can get to, which means all the Russian planes are going to the wrong place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wonder at what point, because you, you haven't seen it as much as I have. Mm. At what point do, do you start to go, oh, shit, this isn't going to work? Like, do you ever do that? Because in most movies, we the good guys win. You know, we don't usually destroy their Earth. Well, this is what's so. This is why the the movie is unique because half of you is cheering for them to be stopped in the war room to stop the plane from what's happening in the war room, right? The other half of you admires the gumption and yeah. ingenuity sure. of these American uh, so uh, military men figuring out how to carry out their mission against all odds and against uh, unforeseen circumstances. Absolutely. Right? The loss of fuel, then the bay door that doesn't open. Yep. All of it, you admire that. And that's what I enjoy about the film, is the film doesn't let you go easy black and white. Well, absolutely. Well, and if you're rooting for what's good for the planet, what you are rooting for is for the Russians to kill Slim Pickens and his crew. Yes. That is what we're, that is the outcome. And how can you hope for that outcome? Because you like these guys. Here's Um, why, here's what I equated to. And you don't play fantasy sports, I'm sure, but in fantasy sports, you have to choose players sometimes. I totally get what you're going to say. Yes. You have to choose players sometimes that are going to play against your team. When you're watching your team, you want your team to win, but you want the player from the other right. team to do really well right. and still lose, is, but do really well. Is there some way he could score seven touchdowns? Exactly. But, but we, we still win. But we win. Yeah. Um, that's what you want. Yeah. And that's what I feel it, like when I watch the movie. It's a very, very strange split. Um, and we go back to the war room, and yeah. then the president asks, is there a chance for this plane to get through? And this is the ultimate George he's got. Oh, he has gone gosh. round the bend. Yeah. And he, the glee... And excitement that he shows in how this plane could fly through and it gets real low if the guy's really good, you know. <laughs> if the pilot's good, see, I mean, I mean, if he's really sharp, he can barrel that baby in so low. I mean, <laughs> you ought to see it sometime. It's a sight, a big plane like a 52. Room, this jet exhaust, frying chickens in the barnyard. <laughs> and he's literally beaming, he's yeah. glowing with excitement. Because he just, you know, he's just got a hard on for the U.S. Air Force mm-hmm. and isn't going, oh shit, right. until the end when he realizes what he just said is the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah, but has he got a chance? Has he got a chance? <laughs> finally. Yeah. It dawns on him finally. Yeah. Back yeah. to the plane. We're on our final bombing run. We're getting closer and closer. You see the train, because all these guys know they're going to die. Yeah. And they are, with the last bit of life, following their training to do what they believe is the right thing. Yeah. And it is heroic and, and also very scary. Mm-hmm. And I always wonder, too, like, man, are there guys that are in those bunkers who have gone through all the psychological training mm-hmm. and inside know they would never do it? You know? Like what is the mor- what is the moral choice? I think you never know what you're going to do till you're in that yeah. moment. Yeah, because mm-hmm. if you really think about like this, could be killing millions of people. Yeah, you know what is the yeah you know, and it also one of the interesting things that is that how do you value an American life or a life of your country versus a life of the other guys? Right? Do you value that American lives are worth everything and they're worth nothing? Yeah. Or do you value that it's even? Or do you, you know, mm-hmm. and those are hard things. I, I mean, I know where I am on this, right. but, but, but there are hard things to contemplate. And, and mostly, 
you know, there's no question that in this film, most of the people will value an American life higher than a Russian life. Yeah, but because you know? we haven't got exposure to any Russian lives other than a phantom premiere and the ambassador, right. who is constantly taking pictures when right. he shouldn't be taking pictures. Well, and, and not just in the movie, but America at this time. Yeah, sure. You know, right. Very you know, good point. Calling them yes. the Ruskies. Yeah. You know, they were the evil empire. They were the bad right. guys. Right. You know, and so we don't really care too much about bad guys. Yeah. Um, you know, like an interesting statistic about Vietnam, if you ask most Americans about Vietnam, how many people were killed in the Vietnam War? And if they know a number, most Americans will say 50,000 people. Mm-hmm. 50,000 people is, or it's 49,000 something, something. But that's the number of Americans killed in Vietnam. Oh, right. The number of Vietnamese is somewhere between 1.5 and 3 million people. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but we don't talk about that number because that's not us. Right. You know? Right. Um, okay. And every country is guilty of that. Absolutely. Yes. No, this is, we form groups. Yes. You know, and it's we, us and them is very, very natural to humans. Yep. Um, and sad, but natural. Yeah. Uh, so we're heading in. We're, the miles are counting down. We're running out of fuel. It's a problem with the bomb doors. They're not working. We see James Old Jones. Man, he's a good actor. Yeah, uh, he, he is. does really well in this scene. And we're, you know, he's going through the steps and we're trying the explosive mm-hmm. bolts and we're trying to reset it. We're trying to repower it. And Slim says he's going down below and he goes into the bomb bay door. We see the two big bombs named Hi There and Dear John. <laughs> this is like a perfect shot. It really it is. is. And he mounts that one fucking bomb mm-hmm. and he's waving his hat at some sparking things. And. And we're hearing the crew talking, and the countdown is going down. By the way, one of the crew members sounds like William Daniels. Oh, I I couldn't. Could I looked around, and I looked on the internet, and there are other people who thought the same thing, but I couldn't find oh, wow. every, any evidence that it was him. Well, he's uncredited. Um, we're targeted in sight. The doors open. The bomb drops. He rides the bomb down, waving his hat and screaming. <laughs> Hey, what about Major Kong? This is the shot that took over 100 takes. Really? Yeah. 100 takes to do that? Yep. Damn. Yeah. I would think the first take would be perfect. Look, it's, first of all, it's Kubrick, That's and second f- of all, it's a magical shot. It is, and it's a fun scene to play. Good God, as an actor watching that, you're just like, that would be a, it's just a choice thing to play. I mean, that it's scene. straddling the bomb. You can't get more phallic than that. Right. Plus cowboy rodeo. Yeah. And just the, there's something like riding a nuclear weapon to your death. Um, something manly about it. Come on. There's <laughs> something about it. No, I agree. There is something. There it is. If you're going to go, right. this is the way to go. Yeah, exactly. Or it is a way. Because it go. is immediate. Yeah. There is no, you are yeah. immediately dust. And, and, and by the way, the, the way they shot this was a late decision. They weren't going to open the bomb bay doors. Yeah. I don't exactly understand it, but Kubrick went to them and said, I want to open these. And they had, they were all sealed. They had to yeah. build it all new to open it, and they had 48 hours to do it. Wow. Um, but yeah, 100 takes to get that shot. It is a remarkable shot. And what I like about it is it's not on purpose. Slim is on there trying to fix trying it. To he free fix it. it and he it fixes it, but it happens to drop yep. right before he fixes or right after he fixes it, which is the timing, and it sets everything yep. up, and he just goes with it. And his reaction is just so fucking brilliant, taking yeah. the hat off and slapping it like a horse. Is he, by the way, I didn't know there was a handle on the nuclear bomb that he could just hold on all the way down. Listen, he's I, a good rodeo guy. He's a good rodeo guy. Which he's got probably, very powerful enjoyed. inductor thigh muscles. <laughs> That's probably you know? true. <laughs> I just think it's it's so iconic, and once again, it lets you know this is a comedy, but it's comedy with real consequences. Well, very real. Because yeah. at this moment now, if you didn't know, because the whole time you've yeah. been going, 
well, they can't blow up the world. Apparently they can because the nuclear weapon just went off. And I love that then we cut back to the war room in this quiet moment. And what's interesting to me is like if we believe what we've been told, there's this doomsday device that's going to destroy all life on Earth. The people who are talking in the war room right now, they're already dead. Yeah. They just don't know it yet. Right. And what do they get into a conversation? How many women? How how many women to men? And the looks. uh, uh, A misogynistic conversation the whole time. Horrible conversation. Yeah. Terrible. About how how their needs are going to be. Once again, it's it's an indictment on masculinity, the film as well. That that is definitely an undercurrent there. Doctor, you mentioned the uh, ratio of uh, 10 women to each man wouldn't that necessitate the abandonment of the so-called monogamous sexual relationship i mean as far as men were concerned regrettably yes but it is you know a sacrifice required for the future of the human race i hasten to add that since each man will be required to do prodigious service along these lines the women will have to be selected for their sexual characteristics which will have to be of a highly stimulating nature they just want to have harems that then go bang any woman they well, want yeah strange love comes out of the shadows yeah. and he says well we could get in these minds and he seems to have worked a lot of this out yes he and has. the more he talks about it and 10 to 1 women and Torgerson gets excited and the, the ego, president damn it. gets excited and then he's as he gets more excited his hand goes out of control and he's biting his own hand and then strange love rises from the, the wheelchair gives the Nazi salute and says, like, But everyone gets their moment because that's, yeah. I think that's when the premier starts escaping and takes the, the picture. Starts taking the ambassador, picture. rather. Because he's still fighting the war. Exactly. His, like you just said, like you said earlier, Steve, they're still playing their stupid little games. He's still playing. He's taking the pictures because he, he, if they do go into the mines, he wants to have knowledge of all this kind of stuff against yeah. to help him, his people. Yeah, they, which makes sense. He wants to help his people as much as we may hate him on the American side. He is doing what he needs to do to save his people. So yep. I mean, he's doing what he needs for him. But yes, by the way, this moment I hate. This moment in the which? movie, the way he stands up, I think it's stupid and it's cliche, and it almost kills the movie for me. Wow, I really do feel. I that get way. it. I get it. I, yeah. I, I, I don't. It's weird, but it's, Strange Love is over the top. But it's, it's the yeah, it's the one moment of over the top comedy with him right. that almost destroys the movie. Well, for because me. the thing is, is Mandrake's behavior and the president's behavior mm-hmm. and Slim Pickens and mm-hmm. really everyone else is all based in reality, a semblance of reality. Yeah. Yes, and Strange Love is a crazy, insane character. Yes, and I, I do agree, but I think we, you know, for me, it doesn't ruin it for me because the movie's so, like, oh, the world is a destroyed yeah so like it's so insane what has just happened that this sort of matches it because after mind fuhrer i can walk cut to nuclear explosions <laughs> yeah, that's right. to the song we'll meet again we'll meet again don't know where don't know where don't know which where. we won't don't know where don't know where <laughs> yeah right we're not meeting again because the world <laughs> has been destroyed yep I don't know what the darkest movie of all time is. Hmm. And there are movies that are much more upsetting and disturbing than Dr. Strangelove. Sure. But the world is destroyed (laughs) in this complete, you know, this expression of the banality of evil. And this is like, it's not even evil. There's not even really evil in this. I mean, there's a crazy, one crazy guy who starts the process. But really, it's just human idiosyncrasies that lead to the end of life on Earth. Which is how it's going to happen. Hopefully not soon. Well, maybe, but human idiosyncrasies yeah. are, are what's going to sink us in the end. 
it is it is so that just oh incompetence is going to do it mm-hmm. you know incompetence inefficiency bad communication mm-hmm. you know and again i look at our Hubris. current current yeah. presidency and yeah yeah it makes me very scared yeah uh <laughs> Yes. So I don't know. I don't like the word final thoughts. On this, <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> what are your thoughts? <laughs> don't know where, don't know when. Um, my final thoughts are basically, this is this is a film, if you haven't visited in a while and you're a little bit older, I would recommend you revisiting, especially what's happening in our current political climate, current international climate. I think it's a an important film to revisit to remember. Uh, the fact that this film is... What almost fifty over fifty some years fifty five almost fifty five years old, yeah, and yet it still resonates today. And the thing we always talk about, and I always say on the cinephiles, is a classic film is classic because you can watch it at any time in your life and get something completely different out of it, depending on where you're at in your life and also what's happening in your world. And this is one of those films that absolutely qualifies. It is an incredibly noble film, all and also an, a film that showcases incredible incompetence and stupidity and foolishness and the hubris of man. And this is what I enjoy about the film is it explores it in a way that's not insulting. It explores it in a way that's intelligent, yet yet um, so base in his comedy at times because we are base as a gender, as a race, and then as a gender as well. So the combination is so perfectly done in this film. And what you said earlier, Steve, at the beginning of this podcast, it is a unique film because of that. Because I don't think there's ever been anything that has walked that line so incredibly perfectly as Stanley Kubrick does in this film. And it's in, and it's also a great film to watch for these incredible performances from a lot of these actors that are in their prime uh, with George C. Scott and Peter Sellers. And then you have a, a great Sterling Hayden as well. And so to me, this is what these are the things that make the film so incredibly fun and believable. And unsettling at the same time. I think for me, I think there's a misconception in the world that comedy is not serious. Ah, good point. And there is comedy that's not serious. You know, watching The Three Stooges is not terribly ser- serious. Or Jim Carrey, yeah. Yeah, there's comedy that's going to be silly and we're going to enjoy some puns and plays on words and all that can is true. But comedy has a power that is really unlike anything else. It's much more powerful than drama in a way. Because comedy can force you to look at yourself in a way that we're can be often frightened to look at ourselves in a serious way. Yeah, I think the reason that Stanley Kubrick laughed when they were trying to make this movie serious was that it was too frightening to be serious about. Yeah, is that it is too because what we're talking about is the worst thing that could possibly happen, and when you start to go, the worst thing that could possibly happen is terrifyingly possible. Mm-hmm. You can only laugh yeah, because you can't face it. Or the only way you can face it is to laugh. And so I do think this movie is important. And I do think that, you know, we, we live in a world where we're ner- starting to be really nervous about making jokes about things. Right. And that bothers me. And I, I, and I don't know quite how to reconcile with it. But I think we need things like Dr. Strangelove. We need comedy. We need to poke fun at ourselves. And the biggest thing that this movie shows is that the danger is not humans that are abnormal. It's humans that are normal. Yeah. It's just humans. <laughs> and that we have the ability to invent powers that can destroy us, but we haven't had the ability to change ourselves and make us responsible enough to deal with those powers. Yeah. Yeah. 
the longer we live, the farther away from the Federation of Planets I feel we come. Man. And that breaks my heart. Because that's what I want, man. Yeah, me too. I want to be, just beat me up. Exactly. I'm ready to go. Exactly. All right, well, that's what we think about <laughs> Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And we would like to know what you think about Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to lo- Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. <laughs> so, as always, you can reach us on our Facebook page at The Cinephiles. That's C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S. We'd love to hear your comments there. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, on iTunes, on YouTube, on Google Play. You can leave comments for us on YouTube. You can leave reviews for us on iTunes. And you know what? We haven't gotten a lot of reviews lately. Oh, no. I know we got a lot of new users and a lot of new listeners. I think you should leave some reviews. Yeah. The fate of the world might depend <laughs> on you reviewing the cinephiles. Yes. Um, you, we'd love to have you join us on our Patreon page. Uh, so you, to do that, you visit the patreon.com slash the cinephiles. If you like any, are interested in any of the movies that we talked about on the show, you can listen to every single one of our podcasts. And buy all of the movies we talked about on our website, which is cinephiles.net. C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S dot net. It's a great website. We're really proud of it. And as always, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? You guys can always reach me at the Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A, on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, yeah, let me know what you thought about the film. If you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a long time, tweet at us. Let us know what you thought. Because one of my favorite tweets that we get every week is when people tweeted us and go, I listened to your podcast. I'd never watched the movie. And I went back and rewatched it and really enjoyed it through your uh, explanation of the film or analysis of the film and that's always nice yeah it makes my day yeah uh, I'd love to hear all that stuff yep. so I think that's it for this week and we will see you next time on the cinephiles if the world is still around <laughs>